One of the characteristics that the Church of God uh, has seemed like it's always had, it always impressed me, was a characteristic that I found the very first Sabbath service I attended the Radio Church of God years ago. And that was an emphasis on learning. We've always seen Christianity as an ongoing process. It's not a point that we reach and then we can just kind of coast into the kingdom from there. Sometimes uh, young people as they're going through college uh, may have what they call a gap year. But we understand that where Christianity is concerned, there really is no such thing as a gap year. There's no time that we can take off. None of us have achieved a, a total level of understanding so that we can take a break from our growth, our efforts to learn as we go forward. When we talk about the doctrines of the Church of God, we often refer to the beginning of Hebrews chapter 6, where six fundamental beliefs are listed. Some have pointed out that there is actually a seventh belief that in a sense precedes those other six on the list. The author of Hebrews begins his point by saying, let us go on to perfection. I don't know about you, but to me that sounds pretty intimidating. Some, uh, something that is perfect, well, it means it doesn't have any flaws of any kind. How many of us have achieved that kind of perfection? I think in many ways we can't even imagine what it would be like to be perfect on that kind of a level. The words perfect, perfected, perfection are used just about 50 times in the New Testament. While the words can be used in Scripture exactly in the same way that we use the word in English, generally we understand that in most of those cases it's not really describing something that has no perceptible flaws of any kind in it. More often the meaning of the word is that it is something, excuse me, move that out of the way, it is something that is perfectly suited for what it was designed to do. It's used to describe a piece of fruit that's ripened to its proper place. It's used to describe the contrast between a young person and a mature adult. One of the best illustrations I found was an illustration of an individual just practically saying, well, suppose you have a project at home that requires you to tighten up a screw. Well, you, if your home is anything like ours, one of the first things you're going to recognize is, okay, what screwdriver do I need? In our home, we have dozens of them. And I would bet that many of you do too. Now, my wife only has two. One flat blade, one Phillips head, that's it. She does everything with those, including hanging pictures on the wall or chasing down bugs. Uh, they can be used in that way. But being like most guys, I have a lot more. I even thought about bringing a couple in. I had one that's about this big I was going to bring. And then I have one that's about this big. But I had this image in my mind that if I brought the big one in, one of the guys would go out to his car, come back in with this humongous screwdriver, and try to recreate that scene from Crocodile Dundee. You call that a screwdriver? Now this is a screwdriver. Uh, so I decided not to bring them in. But you know that when you begin to look at those things, well, there are a lot of things you have to consider. Uh, I have flat-bladed screwdrivers of various sizes, long shank, very short shank, depending on where you need it to be. Big blade, small blade, and then of course there are those nasty Phillips heads which have all kinds of different sizes to them. And then I even have one set that I bought that has 15 different weird tips to it. You know, those where you've got the two little holes or you've got one of those that's got three uh, hole, uh, openings in it and so on. So we have all these different ones. But when the time comes and you have to tighten up that screw, you go find the screwdriver that fits it. And as long as it fits properly, it does the job. And that would be called 
using the biblical term, a perfect screwdriver. It does exactly what it was designed to do. The fact that maybe it's got paint on the handle or nicked up a little ways or something like that is really irrelevant. It perfectly does the job it's designed to do. Now, with that in mind, then I think I can say that perfection is a perfectly good translation of the Greek word that's used. But like most words in many languages, there's a whole range of meaning that can be applied. Most of our modern translations, when they look at that passage about going on to perfection, properly substitute a different word, going on to maturity, moving ourselves in a mature direction. When we use the word mature, we understand that this encompasses a large range of ideas and behaviors. A mature teenager is not the same level as a mature 40-year-old, for example, nor would we expect them to be. We didn't denigrate them in some way and say, well, you're not as mature as a 40-year-old, so you're not mature. No, that's not true at all. They may be mature for the level where they are, and that's fine. Like the term Christian, maturity is not a destination we reach, but a continuing process that, in one way, really never ends. As you look at your age today, whatever it may be, are you mature for a person who is that age? Maturity describes a whole range of attitudes, ways of thinking, behaviors. It's possible to be mature in one area of life and still be immature in others. So, what did the author of Hebrews mean when he said we needed to go on to maturity? The first word of Hebrews 6 verse 1 is therefore. So, that implies that it's built upon what's gone before. So, we actually need to look back to figure out what it saying before that. I'm not going to actually turn there to Hebrews 5. You're welcome to if you like. But the last four verses of that previous chapter there, the, the author has digressed from the direction he was taking, where he's talking about Jesus Christ as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he begins at that point, briefly, to admonish his readers for their inability to understand some of those biblical truths at a deeper level. He begins his digression by telling them that they've allowed themselves to become intellectually lazy, spiritually lazy, about spiritual maturity. It wasn't just a matter of arrested development. They had actually gone backward and lost some of what they formerly knew. He describes them in those terms as spiritual infants who still needed the milk of God's Word instead of the solid meat that that Word could actually provide. He says they've been around long enough, they really should be able to teach these truths to others. But they'd failed to grow in their understanding beyond the basics that they learned at the beginning of their Christian journey. He doesn't belabor the point, and he doesn't actually equate their lack of growth with being guilty of sin in some way. But he does remind them that God expects them to be continually maturing in their understanding, and to fail to do so hinders God from being able to use them as effectively as he would want to. They were not only robbing others of the benefits of spiritual, excuse me, robbing themselves of the benefits of spiritual maturity. They were also robbing others from the help that they should have been able to provide. The fact that this has been preserved in Scripture for all of God's people down through the ages gives us the impression that this failure to mature was not a problem that was confined simply to one congregation in the first century. In fact, I think for many of us, it's difficult for us to read those words 
without asking ourselves how well we have matured as well. Is my understanding greater than it was? Have I grown in those ways? Just, is my understanding of God and his word and his way of life stronger and better than it was before? And of course, when you think of that, you realize this is a very personal question. We're not admonished to evaluate one another's growth, but we are admonished to evaluate our own. How am I doing? Am I maturing? Am I going on to perfection in the sense that God tells me to? It's a question I have to answer for myself. So the fact that neither you nor I have achieved perfection is not really the issue that we need to consider. Instead, we are asked, we are admonished to evaluate our own spiritual maturity in our understanding of the way of life that we've been called to live. And as always, evaluations like that are only useful if they actually produce some change in the way that we do things. Now, at this point, we could turn this sermon into a long guilt trip for all of us. Because, after all, none of us can look at ourselves and say, well, I'm, I'm doing fine here. If you do come to that conclusion, please talk to us afterwards. But we all look at ourselves and we say, no, I, actually, I'm, I'm coming short there. But I don't really want to give you today a guilt trip. I'm actually hopeful that this message will be very encouraging. That it can encourage growth for the right reasons. Not because we feel guilty about coming short, but because we recognize that God gives to you and to me special opportunity and even special tools to enable us to achieve what he's wanting us to learn. So how do we grow toward greater spiritual maturity? I think this is a message that will bring to your mind many scriptures. And it is one of those that I realized we could easily plug in dozens of scriptures that have to do with this particular subject. But I've never found personally that piling on scriptures helps me a lot. Now, if it does help you, that's fine. We are different people and we must be authentic. Uh, saying we, we, oh, if it helps you, fine. There's nothing wrong with that. We learn in different ways. That's uh, one of the things education teaches us, that we do use different patterns. But I haven't found for myself that's especially helpful. So I'm not really going to pile a bunch of scriptures on today, but I will encourage you that as you take your notes, there are probably going to be passages that come to mind. And I would encourage you, put a little note there, remind yourself, so that when you go back later, you can begin to fill in perhaps some of those spots that are important. One of the great blessings that I have to say I've been given is the opportunity to teach various sections of Scripture. And in order to teach them, uh, I've been able to devote a lot more time than the average person has to being able to study these passages, to see what they say to try to figure out how to present them in ways that will help people to understand. One of the great lessons this has taught me is a much greater realization of how much there is to learn. How much is there that I don't know so far? The more I learn, the more I seem to realize I don't know. And I will say, frankly, sometimes that fact comes through so powerfully that it almost seems like, wow, it's too much. How can I possibly accomplish that? In 2005, when I received a call from Richard, Mr. Richard Pinelli asking me to leave the pastoral ministry and become a full-time instructor, I was both excited and a bit intimidated by the idea. Education's always been a passion for me. It's something that I love. And I, so I was excited about that aspect of it. But he told me what they wanted me to teach. He said, we want you to teach Acts, former prophets, epistles of Paul, and you'll be doing some things for ministerial services at the same time. 
basically what he said was 70% of your time will be spent in the classroom and 50% of your time will be spent in ministerial services. And, and he was accurate. I mean, I can't, can't deny that's exactly the way things have gone. So when I hung up the phone, I began to think, wow, this is, this is a wonderful opportunity, but wow, am I really ready for this? Acts, well, okay, that's the history of the early church. That's not bad. I can, I can handle that. This former prophets thing. I told him I'd do it, but I really didn't know what it was. And prophecy's never been my strong suit in the first place. So when I looked it up and I realized, oh, that's the history of Israel from Joshua until the captivity. Okay, not bad. We can do that too. But then there was that epistles of Paul thing. The idea of teaching the epistles of Paul is pretty intimidating. Now, like any pastor, I'd often quoted from those epistles, and I'd certainly studied them at some level, but I didn't feel like I was ready to teach them in a classroom level. That's pretty intimidating. After all, next to Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul is the theological giant of the New Testament. Even Peter said Paul wrote things that were hard to understand, and if they were hard for Peter, well, guess what? They could be hard for me too. How do you do this? How could I even begin to teach something so profound and sometimes difficult to figure out? If Peter struggled with it, who was I to think that somehow I could understand and teach it? I soon learned two principles that I found to be especially helpful. One from counseling and one from the field of education. The principle of counseling had to do with how do you attack a problem, human relations problem, that seems almost too big to address? The answer, while not exactly kosher, was put this way. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. And I found that to be a very encouraging thing because I was faced with an elephant that needed to be somehow devoured a little bit at a time. The other principle, the one from the field of education, was that it normally takes three years of teaching to begin gaining mastery of your subject. So that encouraged me to realize that even though the subject was a really big one and a very challenging one, I really didn't have to get it all under control in a very, very short period of time. It was a little bit more. There was time to work through the learning process to see. Now, I will admit to this day, I feel a little sad for some of those students that I had during those first three years. But I did actually find that as you work through those matters, it's a pretty good principle. Within three years, you begin to feel a certain level of competence where your subject is concerned. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying I have completely mastered the epistles of Paul yet. In the resurrection, I have a list of questions I want to ask him and hope that he doesn't ask me too much. I still have my aha moments as I do this studying, which again is frankly not intimidating, but encouraging to realize how much there is and how God can still help us learn and understand and grasp things if we will put in that patient effort. Competence is accessible. So when we consider the kind of growth in understanding and spiritual maturity that God expects of us, I think it's helpful to keep those two things in mind. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, I'm not turning there. Uh -huh. It's going to be a while before I actually turn to a scripture, but it's okay. You can write them down. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 2. Paul made the comment that anyone who thinks he knows anything really doesn't know anything as fully as he ought to know. Over the last few years, we've probably all come across those individuals who confidently tell people 
what they believe to be true when in fact the person speaking doesn't really know what he or she is talking about. Remember when the first believers received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost described in Acts chapter 2. As they began to speak in other languages, people were completely confused about what was going on. They heard this rushing wind. They came to see what's going on because there was no wind. And here are these people speaking in the various dialects these people had grown up with. And they're confused. What is going on? And we find there's a group of individuals who show up on the scene and they say, I can tell you what's happening. They're all drunk. Now, it made no, no sense. It didn't matter that they had no idea what they were talking about, that they had no basis for their belief. They were still confident that they were right. And the real issue was that these people were drunk. The spirit of those people lives on today. And there are certainly many people who find themselves with that same outlook. When the Apostle Paul wrote the letter that we call 1 Corinthians, it appears that there were several within the local congregation who thought they had a great deal of spiritual understanding. But Paul brought out in the first chapter that God had actually chosen those who were not the wise and the powerful and the mighty of the first century world. He went on to explain that the pattern that God would use in calling people down through the ages was a pattern of calling the weak and making them strong. Calling the foolish and making them wise in godly wisdom. Calling the ignored and giving to them a glory far above anything that any human has ever seen. And it is in that context that Paul shows us the amazing tool that God has provided so that you and I can learn the most important knowledge of all. He begins chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians by reminding them, and you can turn to 1 Corinthians if you like, we're almost there. He begins by reminding them that human intelligence and wisdom are limited. And that those who rely on their own abilities will not be able to move beyond a physical level of understanding. Paul explains that he did not come to them hoping to impress them with his personal abilities. He was well educated. He certainly could have in many ways, but that was not his desire. And then he explained to them why that was and still is important. In 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 5, he says, So that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. For whatever reason, we've been hearing quite a bit about the subject of faith lately. Maybe God is preparing us for something where genuine faith is going to be more needed. Godly faith, the kind all of us must build, is not based upon miracles or signs or human reasoning. Mr. Frank's sermon during the Winter Family Weekend expressed that, I think, in very powerful and very helpful ways. And I think any pastor who was sitting there, any minister could listen to that and say, yes, I, I know exactly what you mean. I've seen those, uh, those same situations come about. God answers in different ways. Sometimes incredible miracles, sometimes partial miracles, sometimes not the way we wanted, but it's his answer nonetheless. And it requires faith, as Mr. Franks brought out, for us to live in that way. So Paul is making the point here that our faith cannot be built upon miracles or signs or wonders or things coming about the way that we wanted or prophecies fulfilled the way that we thought, that our faith instead has to have as its foundation the character and the mind of God himself, that it is the one thing that we can rely upon. As he continues on, the next verse, verse 6, he says this, 
However, I'm not trying to impress anybody with what we can do and what we know, but we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. We don't have to apologize about the message that we have. It is a message of wisdom. But as he says, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. He tells us that God had a level of wisdom, a kind of godly wisdom that the world is unable to access. But the spiritually mature are able to access and use this very special godly wisdom. The term mystery is used a number of times. Paul is very fond of the term, and basically it doesn't mean something you can't understand. It means something that's not understood until it's revealed. But once it is, you understand that. Simple example for many of us, the meaning of the holy days. For the world around us, it's a mystery they don't understand. To the Jewish population, they really have no idea what the holy days are about. You and I do, because it was revealed to us, because God chose to help us to see. And when we look through that, we work our way annually through that process of the annual holy days. We are continually amazed at the perfection of God's plan. How wonderful it is compared with the idea that many of us were given when we were growing up, you're going off to heaven or hell, and instead you have this magnificent plan that includes every human being who has ever lived having a full opportunity to be a part of God's family for all eternity. What an amazing plan that is. And without God revealing that to us, we wouldn't know. The next section of Scripture, which is really the core concept of this entire message, is a section that's confusing to most religious groups and people. As I try to prepare a sermon like this, I will very often try to go to find uh, comments in various commentaries, insights where people can maybe give a little bit more. But you know, in this section, there's almost nothing there's almost nothing available that adds any understanding because of one thing. Because most have accepted the idea of the Holy Spirit being the third member of a triune God. The third member of the Godhead. And as a result of that, they take that information and try to overlay it on what Paul has said. And it makes no sense at all. We recognize that the Holy Spirit is, in fact, the power of God. The way a God who dwells in a spirit dimension interacts with you and me and a world that is physical. It is the medium that allows us to communicate with him and him to lead us. Virtually all of religion has bought into the deception that the Holy Spirit is the third member of the Godhead, and they try to overlay that on Paul's words, and they end up with confusion. We'll look at a couple of examples of that in a moment, but let's just go on reading. I want to read the section from verses 9 through verse 15 all the way through, and then we're going to go back and look at them in a little bit more detail. Starting in verse 9, he says, but as it's written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of, the, of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. 
but he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. Now, as I said, we're going to work our way through this a little bit at a time. But I think even at that cursory reading, you can see why the wrong conception of the Holy Spirit could really cause a lot of confusion here. The commentators really struggle with it. They conclude as they read this that, well, no one really knows what God's doing except the Holy Spirit. And therefore, you really can't know what God is doing. But if the Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity, why would a member of the Godhead need to search in order to understand the deep things of another member of the Godhead? Were they not talk with each other? What's going on? We used to, many years ago, often quote the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary. We don't do that very often, thankfully. But here's what it says in explaining what's given here. The Spirit, Holy Spirit, delights to explore the infinite depths of His own divine mind and then reveal them to us. Okay, so the Holy Spirit is trying to figure out what He's thinking. And then He tells us what He's thinking. Understanding what the Holy Spirit actually is and does changes the entire meaning of this passage. Let's go back and look at it. Verse 9. Paul says, But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So he tells us it is impossible, no matter how intelligent, to grasp on our own what God is truly like and what he's doing. As the next verse is going to show us, the Spirit is the medium that makes comprehension possible. Imagine if you were asked to try to appreciate a beautiful painting, if you could only hear a verbal description of that painting, and you could not use the medium of sight. You can think of your own picture. I started to mention different ones, but then I thought, no, that's fine. We've all seen things that are beautiful for us. How do you really appreciate it if you can't see? Someone can give you a wonderful description. Years ago, I read about um, French short story author uh, Guy de Maupassant. And according to the, what I read, he went to Alexandre Dumas. I don't know father or son, one of the others, but he went to them and he said, I really would like to learn to write well. Can you teach me? And Dumas took the task on. He took him to the Bois de Bologna and he set him in the middle of a clearing and he pointed out a tree. No, no, he didn't point out a tree. I'm sorry, I got ahead of the story. He took him to the clearing, set him there, and he said, all right, I'm going to leave. I want you to pick out a tree. And I want you to describe that tree so clearly that when I come back, I can figure out which tree you were describing. Quite a task. And de Maupassant took it on. He became a great writer. But you can imagine how difficult that would be. How could I describe it in a way that someone else could understand it? And if I'm trying to describe a beautiful painting, how could I, how could I do that and help them really appreciate it if they can't see it. How would they do that? Well, that's what it's like trying to understand the things of God without the medium of the Holy Spirit. It is the medium that matters, not the person's innate intelligence. Verse 10. Verse 9 says you can't on your own, but verse 10 says God has revealed them to us. Revealed what? The things God's prepared for those that love Him. God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Now there's a lot in this verse that's very easy for us to look over. God has no desire 
to keep those things hidden from his people. He wants us to understand. I did find one interesting comment from the Thomas Nelson version of the King James Study Bible. It had this note about two simple words in this verse that we can easily overlook. The words, to us. God has revealed them to us. Their commentary says, to us, is in the emphatic position in Greek, emphasizing the enormous privilege granted the recipients of divine revelation. In other words, this sentence in the Greek basically says, God has revealed them through his spirit to us. Big exclamation point. The magnificent treasure of God's revealed truth is accessible to the mature believer, as the quote says. We would also note that it tells us the spirit searches, and the word searches is in present tense. In other words, this is an ongoing process of searching. It's not a task we complete and then move on, like someone perhaps searching for a buried treasure. Once they find it, they're done, they move on. This is a continual process. God's Spirit leads us into a lifetime of searching. But note that this verse also shows us something else about what the Holy Spirit does in those who have received that amazing gift. God's Spirit in us fuels a desire to know more about God and the way He thinks. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, again, I'm not turning there. You've read it many times. God declares that his thoughts and our thoughts are not on the same level. His are much higher. But instead of looking down on us because our thoughts are so far below his, he gives us the Holy Spirit and invites us to bring our thoughts up to his level. There's only one other place in Scripture where the phrase, the deep things of God, is used. So hold your place right here. I would like to turn back there. It's in the book of Job. Job chapter 11, and starting in verse 7. Job 11, verses 7 through 9. One of Job's quote-unquote friends is quizzing him, but his point is good. He says, can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They're higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, the place of the dead. What, what can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. How can you possibly hope to understand the deep things of God? They are beyond you. And yet this passage tells us that God grants His Spirit to empower us and enable us to be able to see those things which are deep beyond normal human comprehension. We're going to come back to that concept in just a moment, but let's go back to 1 Corinthians 2 and pick up verse 11. He says, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now, again, if you think the Spirit of God's a person, then basically the only thing you can derive from this is the idea that, well, only the Holy Spirit knows what God's doing, and the rest of us are kind of left in the dark. But that's not what it says when you understand what the Spirit of God is. And we remember that we often quote this particular verse when we're talking about the Spirit in man, which is another vitally important truth that the world doesn't comprehend. But the context here, though we use it in that way, and that's perfectly legitimate, the context here is about what the Holy Spirit does in the lives of believers. Now, again, I want you to hold your place here. We'll come right back to it. But I want to look at another passage. Consider what Jesus Christ told his disciples about that spirit just prior to his death. It's back in John chapter 14. John chapter 14, we'll begin in verse 15. John 14, verse 15. He says, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you 
another helper. That uh, he or it, as we may understand, may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth. That's an amazing statement, a title all by itself. The spirit of truth, which, as we would better put, the world cannot receive because it neither sees it nor knows it. But you know it, for it dwells with you and will be in you. As Jesus Christ talked to those disciples, the Holy Spirit had not come into them yet. That was still 40-plus days away, on the day, or 50-plus days away on the day of Pentecost, when they would receive it in that way. But throughout this period of time, the Holy Spirit has been working with them, much as the Holy Spirit works with those who are not yet baptized. We have our young people in the church who haven't yet reached that point. And, you know, are they cut off from God and from an understanding? No, God's Spirit works with them. It certainly does. At least it's available if they want that Spirit to work with them. And what did it do? Well, for those disciples, before that Holy Spirit was dwelling in them, they understood things that the religious leaders didn't get at all. Now, admittedly, their understanding was not always totally correct. Would you like us to call down fire from heaven? No, that's not it. No, that's not what the Spirit leads you to. Uh, But they did understand a lot of things the religious leaders didn't get at all. When the Spirit came within them, That understanding, that depth, that grasp became much greater. We drop down to verse 26 of this chapter, John 14, verse 26. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, which the Father will send in my name, it will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. How many times have you read through the scripture And suddenly something leapt out at you that you didn't think of before. Oh, yes, I've read that before, and there it is. It's kind of the same kind of thing. Jesus Christ had said things to them that they didn't get, but at a later time they did. They came to grasp those things. The Holy Spirit teaches you things. As the Holy Spirit would teach them, teaches us as well. So as you're turning back to 1 Corinthians 2, we are reminded that the Holy Spirit is the medium God uses to reveal. Only revelation can provide the divine knowledge. Therefore, divine revelation is necessary for spiritual knowledge to take place. So we're back in 1 Corinthians 2, and we drop down to verse 12. He says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit, better put, which is from God. Literally what the Greek says here is, we have received the Spirit, the one from God, as, in essence, a contrast to the one from the world. That we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. So he says here, God has freely given us this spirit so that we may know and understand things that we couldn't know and understand otherwise. Now that concept of the spirit of the world is probably worth considering as well because we're told that there is a spirit power that blinds men from the truth. But uh, I'm afraid that will have to wait for another sermon. The Holy Spirit does many things for us, but Paul here is emphasizing that one reason God gave us that gift is because he wants us to understand what he's doing, what his plan is, and how his mind works. Verse 13, Paul says, these things we also speak Not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. In other words, he's telling us the Holy Spirit enables us to judge by a different standard. To judge by a spiritual standard. Now, when you evaluate something, you compare it to a known standard. So suppose you were out there trying to buy a new car. Okay? If we said, okay, this is a good deal on the car, 
it costs two million four hundred twenty-eight thousand five hundred sixty-four Indian rupees. That help you much? Unless you're Indian, probably not. Or if you're into finances in some way that I'm not. You probably wouldn't know whether that was a good deal or not because that's a standard you're not used to. Now, if we translate it into dollars, that's actually about $30,000. And therefore, you would have the ability to understand and decide whether this was appropriate or not. So what Paul is telling us here when he says we compare spiritual things to spiritual is that the converted person uses a standard of evaluation that those who don't yet have God's Spirit can't use. It's inaccessible. It's not accessible to them to know. We can and we must make judgments about spiritual matters because God's Spirit gives us an understanding of spiritual values. Verse 14, he says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. The person who hasn't been given the gift of the Holy Spirit thinks our judgments are foolish. But they're really unable to see the full picture. Again, it's like trying to judge a work of art while lacking the medium of vision. You really can't do it. So the average person, the natural man, and this does not in any way imply the natural man is somehow evil or bad. He's simply limited. He doesn't have the medium of God's Spirit to enable him to make a judgment. So you look at a situation and you say, well, I think of one situation a number of years ago where a gentleman was telling me about where he said a friend came to him and he said, look, you, uh, you don't work on Saturdays. You ought to work on Saturday and you can make time and a half. And his response was, if I worked one Saturday, I would lose more in one day than you're going to make the rest of your life. I can promise you his friend did not understand what he meant. But every one of you did. Because we judge by a different standard. God's given us a different one. Verse 15. But he says, he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. Now that last clause about not being rightly judged by anyone is, tells us that we really must not allow the world and the judgments of this world to shape what we do and how we conduct ourselves. Again, I think Mr. Jones addressed that quite well in the sermonette. We can't use the judgments of the world to determine what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. We can't allow the world standard to become ours. No, that cannot be done. And regardless of how the world may view you or me, we have to recognize their judgment really is flawed. There's something missing there. We can't rely on their judgments, no matter how intelligent or humanly wise they may be. But it's the first clause that leads to the rest of today's message. We are told that we must utilize the Holy Spirit in order to live the kind of life that God wants us to live. If we have the Holy Spirit, we must use it to examine every area of life. Failing to use what he's given to us again, to use the metaphor, would be like trying to judge works of art with our eyes closed, where we even would have access to the medium of vision, but we simply chose to close our eyes. The same thing can happen spiritually. When visible light shines on a subject, on an object, it reveals certain things about it. You've been in a dark room, perhaps, and you can't see what's around you. But when the light comes on, okay, it enables you to see what's there, to recognize obstacles, to recognize even potential dangers that might be there. It reveals things that you wouldn't know if the object were still in darkness. In a sense, we could liken God's Spirit to a unique light. 
maybe you've been in one of those situations where, let's say, for example, in a, maybe a natural history museum where you're in a room and they turn off the regular light and turn on the ultraviolet light, and you see the stones that are there in a very, very different way. Uh, they may glow, they have different colors and so on. Or one that I think is especially interesting, to recognize that the common honeybee, or bumblebee for that matter, uh, uh, very important pollinators, uh, have the ability to see ultraviolet light at a level that you and I cannot. And you can go to a number of websites out there, look it up, and they'll show you pictures of flowers under ultraviolet light. And in many cases, uh, one particular one I was looking at yesterday is this nondescript yellow flower. But under ultraviolet light, it looks white with a red bullseye right in the middle where the bee needs to go. So with that light, it's almost like they're guided directly to where they need to be. And you and I can't see that because our eyes don't pick that up in the same way. So in a sense, God's Spirit is like that additional light. When we shine it at something, it reveals aspects that we couldn't see without that special light. The more we use it, the more we desire to see everything under that light. One of the things I showed at the students is, uh, I found this out just a couple of years ago. Um, if you were to go out into a desert area, especially, it probably would be true here as well, but uh, not as much. You were to go into a, a desert area and turn on an ultraviolet light, scorpions glow in ultraviolet light. So that's a neat thing to know. You just go out there with a regular light, you might not see it at all, but with that ultraviolet, oh, I can recognize danger. So when we have this extra light available, what do we find? Well, we find that it's very useful for us to use that light. It's not that what we see revealed by regular light is incorrect. It's just incomplete. So as you and I look at this world, as human beings look at it, what we see may be relatively accurate, but it's incomplete. And it is the Spirit of God that empowers us to see at a different level. It reveals things that are good. It reveals things that are dangerous. So if we want to understand the deep things of God, where do we begin? If we want to do exactly what Paul says there and use the Spirit of God to search out continually the deep things of God, where do we begin? There are two passages that shed some light on that question, and they may not be ones that you would think of right away. But the principles they teach are, in fact, central to our quest to learn. The first question to ask ourselves is what's my motive? What's my motive for wanting to know more? James chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Famous passage, and it certainly applies in principle to many different areas of life. But I want to apply it to what we're looking at here. James chapter 4, verse 2. He says to the people he's writing to, You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. But that isn't the end of the story. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Okay, why do I want to know the deep things of God? Through the years, I've come across people who spend an enormous amount of time putting together chronologies about Christ's return or all kinds of intricate aspects of prophecy. If you've been watching the FI online, which of course I know all of you do religiously, little pun there, but anyway, I know you all do religiously. Uh, it's interesting some of the questions as Dr. Levy's been going through the, um, uh, the post-exilic prophets, some of the questions that have come in, and he has very honestly said, I don't know how to answer that. It's not clear. There's not something I can go to to say, here's the answer. But, oh, we want to know all of these wonderful details. Okay, why do you want to know more of the deep things of God? Is it to impress somebody else? Is it to say, look what I know. I know things other people don't know. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 
my second principle that applies here, but it's very directly related. We talked about verse 2, but notice verse 1. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies or builds up. Okay, you want to understand the deep things of God? Why? What's my motive? Is it a right motive? I hope it is. I'm not accusing anybody of not having the right motive. I'm simply saying that through the years I've seen some that were not right motives. So look at ourselves. Why do I want to understand? Is my motive right? And if it is, well, let's look at a few more principles that God gives that can apply here. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, one of my wife's favorite passages. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And there's an interesting concept there. Now, it's important for us to recognize that, okay, God doesn't reveal everything. There are a lot of things about God that we're not going to understand until later on until we have the opportunity to dwell in a spirit dimension with him. And I somehow suspect he's going to stay a few steps ahead of us even then. But there are things that he reveals, and they belong to us. There are things we don't want to let go of. There are things we don't want to lose sight of, things we want to hold on to. But I was fascinated by that last portion Things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that, so that, we may do all the words of this law. So in other words, the desire to understand the deep things of God is related to a desire to recognize what God expects of me and to be able to do it more fully. Psalm 119 contains a couple of passages as well that I think are especially apropos here. Psalm 119, verse 18, David's prayer. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Now, I've known people who want to see wondrous things from the prophecies, but what about this? What is it telling me? Well, if you drop down to verse 96 of this same psalm, he says, I have seen the consummation of all perfection, but your commandment is exceeding broad. Okay, that's a little challenging. Here are a few other translations. I realize that everything has its limits, but your commands are beyond full comprehension. To all perfection I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. Or one that has a little more comment to it. I have seen that all human wisdom or knowledge, however extensive, noble, and excellent, has its bounds and limits and end. But your law, a transcript of your own mind, is infinite and extends to eternity. Each commandment covers much more than what we may see on the surface. And as we mature, we come to see more and more about them. In Romans chapter 7 and verse 6, Romans 7, verse 6, I don't want to explain the whole verse. There's a lot to it, but I want to capture just a portion of it. Romans 7, verse 6, Paul says, But now we have been delivered from the law. And basically what he's saying is the penalty the law demands has been paid by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ when we're baptized. He goes on to say, Having died to what we were held by, and in this section he goes on to explain we were held captive by our sins, then he makes the statement, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the latter. He tells us here that this conversion process that you and I are going through is a process that leads us to serve God, not simply in the oldness of the latter, but at a new level 
a new dimension of service that deals with the spirit and the attitude behind those. Now, at the recent Winter Family Weekend, four of us, Dr. Levy, Mr. Franks, Mr. Myers, and I, had the opportunity to teach a series of continuing education classes for those who wanted to attend. Sometimes when we do these classes, we try to cover some of the same material that we cover at the FI classes here. And that's, again, perfectly appropriate. But this year, Dr. Levy and I, independently of one another, chose to take a different approach. Dr. Levy gave a series of classes on what it means to walk by faith, using three different biblical characters to illustrate that concept. I chose to give a series of three classes that I called Defending the Distinctives, with one class each on the Sabbath, on the annual holy days, and in the laws of clean and unclean meats. Now, I think you could understandably wonder, well, after all this much time, how much, how much more is there to learn about three such very fundamental doctrinal distinctives? While I hope the classes were helpful for those who attended, I know the process of preparing them was tremendously helpful for me. And it taught me concepts that I really hadn't stopped to consider in the same way before. For example, the class on clean and unclean meats brought up a principle that I, I really hadn't thought about in the same way. I hadn't thought that much about it. I think at times we've kind of minimized the significance of those laws by describing them as essentially physical matters and not really of the same magnitude as God's other laws. But as I began to work through this and examine what was there, I realized that as a matter of fact, they are never presented as physical matters. They are in fact presented in respect of the holiness of the God we represent. He even tells us that violating those laws is a way of making ourselves abominable before him. And he further shows that minimizing the instructions about holiness actually causes people to profane God himself. Likewise, some have tended to minimize the laws concerning leaven during the days of unleavened bread, saying, well, it's just a physical matter. If you get some, it's no big deal. Well, it's true that they do involve physical actions, but we should understand there's a spiritual dimension to this that says something about us if we take them carelessly. So that concept further led me to ask a question, and Dr. Levy and I discussed it the other day, are there any of God's laws that are entirely physical? Don't all of God's laws have a spiritual dimension to them? Even the laws that ceased to function when the old covenant was superseded by the new covenant had a spiritual component to them. And they teach us about God and his way of thinking. James makes a similar point about what the study of the deeper things of God teaches the believer. In James chapter 2, verse 10, famous passage, James 2, verse 10, he says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble at one point, he's guilty of all. Now, we talk about that and what it means, but notice verse 11. Why? Because he who said do not commit adultery also said don't murder. If you don't commit adultery but you do murder, have you, you have become a transgressor of the law. God's law reveals his mind, reveals his character, the standards that we are to live by. And by studying that law with the aid of the Holy Spirit, we come to understand some deeper facets of God's mind and character. But as we said, even that is just one facet of the deeper things of God. The more we consider it, the more we understand Paul's words in Romans chapter 11. Starting in verse 33, Romans 11 verse 33, Paul's been describing the, 
plan that God has that includes all people. And he's answering questions about, well, what about the Jews? You know, they did, weren't they given a special advantage? Or, you know, they, they seem to have rejected the Messiah, so what about them? And Paul is giving this explanation of God's plan and how God is working it out faithfully. Nobody's being left out. And he says here, starting in verse 33 of Romans 11, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. This is our theological giant of the New Testament. And he looks at God and says, wow, there's so much I don't understand yet. Verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who's become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. The spiritually mature person is a person who uses the gift of the Holy Spirit to grow in the understanding of the deep things of God. We can continue to feel guilty every time we stumble across those words in Hebrews 5 about the need to be becoming teachers. Or we can employ the gifts God's given us to become those who are of full age and able to profit from God's Word. We can be intimidated by the idea of becoming perfect or we can begin to address the challenge bite by bite. In 2 Timothy 1, verse 6, Paul said to Timothy, Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. He goes on to describe that spirit saying it's not a spirit of fear. And I think we could say it's not a spirit of discouragement. Not a spirit of, oh, it's too much, but it's a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. You and I can stir up that spirit, and that spirit gives to you and to me a perspective, a medium for examining and understanding the mind of God the Father and of Jesus Christ. What an awesome gift we've been given. Wouldn't it be shame to close our eyes and not use that incredible medium.